0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from the Washington Post.
2: Hi, Jeff. This one three,
1: Oprah.
0: Hi there, how are you? Um, it's Lisa
2: Bonus, calling for the Post. This
0: is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Friday, August 14th. Today, what it's like to be at the mercy of an overwhelmed unemployment system, and the artist drawing portraits of healthcare workers.
3: Daniel Vogt is a young 30-year-old guy living in D.C. He's a punk rock kind of guy. He's got, you know, the tattoos up and down his arms and legs and face piercings. He'd been in a bunch of punk rock bands and toured the country and was working until recently at a bar in Georgetown. I don't know. I was getting there. I was a bartender in training. You were learning. Today. Yeah. But you were working there. Yeah. And it's it's a fancy place or fancy-ish place.
1: They're very, very fancy. I had to wear a button-up shirt. And, <laughs> you know. you have to put this back in? You open. know what's funny? The first day, uh, we we're going to open for service. We had. I've been working there for two weeks doing training. And... uh we had a surprise opening he's like okay guys we're gonna have a soft opening i'm just gonna have some people come in here we're gonna try stuff out i'm like whoa whoa i was like i'm not ready for this and i put on the button-up shirt and everything i look like a goofball because i have like the long curly hair and the nose ring and stuff i'm like hey before we open do you want me to take out my piercings or anything like that and he grabs me by the face and he goes no you're a beautiful man you're going to make us so much money (laughs) that's just like okay that's funny <laughs> and then i got a haircut and he gave me a raise
3: and of course in march is when the pandemic arrived and literally shut down everything in the city including bars and restaurants and daniel had applied for unemployment benefits from the city but when i first met him in mid june he still hadn't gotten those benefits yet and he'd been living in a house with friends And he'd been living rent-free since March because he had no money coming in. And basically, when I first met him, he was down to $10 in cash in his wallet. And he had a really drastic choice to make, which was basically, where am I going to go? There was a new roommate who was coming who could pay, who was going to stay in his old room. And he realized very quickly that he could be homeless very soon, uh, within days. My name is Kyle Swenson, and I'm a reporter covering inequality on the Post's social issues team.
1: Things things were going really well, you know? It's not like uh, life didn't have its issues, but I was in a situation where if I kept working and I was a little frugal, I would be able to get something eventually, mm-hmm. you know?
3: But but this kind of derailed everything. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So how did Daniel get here? Like, how did he end up in this situation?
3: Well, Daniel, you know, he was in a place that a lot of people, I think, in America, not just in Washington, D.C., are in, and that he didn't have a lot of savings. He was kind of living check to check. And all of a sudden in March, we get hit with this huge tsunami of social problems, right? It's not just the health issues. It's not just everyone being afraid of the coronavirus. It literally shuts down the economic engine of the country. And that trickles down all the way to someone like Daniel who was working at a bar and his money, you know, his stream of income suddenly dried up. And the social safety net, you know, the services that were in place to help somebody like him in his situation, they were being hit, which is the tidal wave of claims and of people needing help. And he got caught, like millions of others across the country, in this situation of a social safety net that was was overtaxed and overburdened at the moment when more people needed it than ever.
0: How did things get to a point where they were that bad in D.C.? And is, is that a reflection of a bigger national issue?
3: Absolutely. So, you know, employment services in, in D.C., we call it the Department of Employment Services. But these programs across the country have faced a lot of defunding. And here in D.C., you know, last year in 2019, they had about 27,000 unemployment claims. Between March 13th, when everything kind of shut down in D.C., and the beginning of August, they had over 133,000 claims. So that's literally five times more than they processed all last year. And in D.C., there were a couple factors that that kind of created a, a larger problem. The system, the actual Unemployment system where you would apply for your claims was antiquated. You know, the website is a little old. Uh, it had had some funding issues as well, which the city government has acknowledged. But across the country, these programs that are set up to, to help people when they're really down, all of a sudden they're seeing this incredible demand. And they're just not equipped or organized to deal with five times the number of claims than they see usually in an entire year.
0: And these systems are probably really hard to navigate, even when they aren't overburdened.
3: There's two kind of pipelines for unemployment right now.
0: There's something that's supposed to be a pandemic assistance that they say
1: you only qualify for if you've filled out an unemployment application.
3: Mm -hmm. So first of all, you have regular unemployment, which they call UI, unemployment insurance, which has existed, you know, pre-pandemic. But then there's also the PUA, which is Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, which was put in place by the federal government's response to the pandemic. So you have these two pipelines that basically are available for money to come to somebody who's struggling uh, since mid-March. The problem is it's very confusing about how those two systems overlap and how they're implemented. For example, in D.C., you have to apply for UI, Unemployment Insurance, and be rejected from it before you can then be shifted over and apply for PUA, for the pandemic assistance from the federal government.
1: I did all of that. Mm-hmm. I have received several, I think I got one over here.
3: It's very confusing because people are getting letters in the mail saying, you don't qualify for UI, and they think, well, why? I should get this because of the pandemic. I got
1: mad and ripped them up and threw them or something. Oh, I understand. It was these things that said I was entitled to $0.00.
3: But they don't realize that they have to shift over then and apply for the PUA, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. So it's very confusing. And of course, you could clear these issues up if you got somebody on the phone to talk with at the department. But because of the huge number of people in distress right now, you're going to sit on the phone for hours and hours and hours. Um, so that came in the mail after you had applied online? Yes. You get
1: uh, and then I would make an appeal. i tried try to reopen the claim and I because I didn't understand why I'm getting denied. Mm-hmm. No one can answer the phone. If they do answer the phone, they tell me to email someone who doesn't reply.
3: There's such a backlog that people aren't even being notified in a timely way that they don't qualify for regular unemployment. And then such should be applying for the federal funding. And in that way you're losing weeks and weeks of time and even months where you're still not getting money, you're still not feeding your family, you're still not paying your rent. You know, you're you have no money.
1: If I'm supposed to be getting $600 of unemployment a week, okay, yeah. And it's been this long, they owe me at least $7,000. Right. Because that's what I was told, that the unemployment thing is 600 bucks a week. And again, and I can't get 600 bucks a month. I can't right. get a dollar a month. Can't yeah. get nothing.
0: And it sounds like, you know, Daniel is one of so many people that are dealing with financial stress that also makes everyday life stressful. And I'm wondering, how is he dealing with that and how is he responding to the situation?
3: So he's been really active in trying to get somebody from the district government to help him because he didn't know if he was applying for this wrong, if he had checked the right boxes. So he was calling every day. He was sending all these emails. He was staying on hold for hours and hours. Just trying to get somebody to respond, he had reached out to the mayor's office and finally an aide from the mayor's office began responding to him.
1: She goes, hi Daniel, I've followed up with DOES and once I receive an update, I'll let you know. This is already four days late, no, not four days late, uh, four days after I contacted her, two days late. Mm -hmm. And she said uh, she'd have them call me within one to two days, which has never happened, they haven't emailed me or contacted me. Right. Uh, I said thank you and then today, I said, "DOES needs to contact me today. Three months and no concrete reasoning is unacceptable."
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: what was that one or two days thing even about? I can't keep I can't keep going through this not getting replies thing. Yeah. Um,
3: and nothing. None. But she really said, "You know, I don't know what's going on with your case. I can't get any information out of the department either." And so he's constantly reaching out, constantly hitting this kind of bureaucratic red tape and getting caught in it and not being able to to get anywhere. And at the same time, you know, this is a guy who, who would usually be out looking for work, be out trying to find new gigs to get some money coming in, and nobody's hiring. You know, the entire city is shut down because of the pandemic.
1: I've been in similar situations, but it's never been... I've always been able to do the right thing to get out of it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, okay, well get a job, work a job, make some money, do a mm-hmm. thing. Now it's like do a job, work a job. Government shuts the job down and tells you to go fuck yourself and die.
3: Mm-hmm. So there's nothing he can do. And so he's, he's hitting a wall there as well. And then also he's begins feeling, you know, hopeful every day that this will be the day that somebody at the agency or the department will pick up and, give him an answer but then he's going through this emotional cycle where he feels like an idiot for for hoping and 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 having that hope
1: and it's this really hard combo between anxiety and depression where you just like you don't know what to do you feel stupid for hoping Mm -hmm. and then you just get really depressed and just sort of want to just crawl up in a ball and just give up Mm -hmm. because like what else are you going to do
0: so what else was on Daniel's mind while he was going through all this?
3: Daniel was basically living on $100, $80 money orders that his dad, who lives in New York City, was sending him. He he told me, you know, he felt really bad every single time he had to trek up to that Western Union to get some money from his dad because his dad was a, a, a maintenance man in New York City. But and- mm-hmm. well, he doesn't
1: have a lot of money either. My dad's not doing well. Mm-hmm. My dad doesn't have cable. My dad doesn't have... Internet, my dad listens to to sports on the radio like it's 1942 or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like my dad drinks water and eats basic. Like he doesn't have any kind of luxuries. Right, right.
3: Every time he said he would go up there, he'd think, you know, this is another $80. This is another $100 that my dad doesn't have. And My dad isn't, you know, swimming in money. He needs all the money he has.
1: Part of me almost just wants to at least die in the way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't want my parents to help me.
3: Yeah.
0: Because
1: then it just makes it look like everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Things are not fine. We mm-hmm. can't rely on our parents when we're thirty years old.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, like our my parents are supposed to start relying on me right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, my yeah. mom's got lung cancer. And my dad's sixty-eight years old, and I'm sitting here going, "Can you please help me?"
3: Yeah. So he was very conscious of that. He felt, I think, guilty about that. And also, one of the things that about poverty that I learned from from this story and from spending time with Daniel is it is incredibly isolating. You feel very much cut off from everyone yeah, else you around to, you.
1: Con, you don't get to contribute to society.
3: Right. You know what
1: I mean? Nobody wants to date a guy who doesn't know what he lives. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to hang out with somebody who smells like because they haven't had a shower in three days. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So now this is just the countdown to having no friends, another couple of years and not having a girlfriend. Another, you know, it's like, and then the more it happens,
3: Daniel told me, you know, he couldn't relate to people because he was just consumed with these concerns. You know, do I have enough money to pay the phone bill this month? You know, do I have enough money to eat today? And everyone else around him didn't have those same concerns, and in a way it was so isolating. He, he told me that he thought, you know, everybody he, he came into contact with and talked with, they thought he was crazy and he thought they were an idiot for not realizing how bad things could get.
0: So... The clock was obviously ticking in terms of him needing to find a place to stay. What were his
3: options? He basically had two options. He could start living on the street, which means he could be forced into homelessness. Or he could get up and stay with his dad in his dad's one-room apartment in the Bronx. Now, this obviously was the option that he wanted, but there was a lot kind of behind that. First of all, he had to just get to New York, and we were in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I
1: got to see if they're still doing the Chinatown bus. Um I don't know what transporta- what public transportation is like between states and stuff like that. I-, I don't know what the situation is.
3: You know, his dad sent him 100 bucks that was supposed to help him get up to New York to stay with him. And he had to pay a phone bill. He owed some money. You know, he had to patch up his room for the new roommate. Even getting a hold of that $100 became for Daniel, this whole ordeal. You know, he didn't have a car. He didn't have transportation. So he had to walk in just blistering sun, uh, on a Saturday morning from his house to the Safeway where the Western Union was. And it's about a mile and a half walk and it's in the blistering sun and he's tired. He hasn't eaten. He was dehydrated. And it just became this whole ordeal having to get up there and Every little moment, as he said, takes 10 extra steps when you're in this kind of financial situation. You were saying you got to make some moves, so you got to get the phone taken care of today? Yeah, I have to figure out if Metro PCS
1: will let me pay my phone bill in cash. I got to find out which location will allow me to do it, because some can do, some can don't. Um, got to see if it's too far out of the way how to get to it and right. not eat into the money that's supposed to get me to New York. Uh, a bunch of bullshit. Everything, that... when you're poor, everything is a 10 step process that costs way more than, than
3: like, I know. if you have some resources. I know. Yeah.
1: I had, I had friends, like,
2: legitimately. And then here's the other
3: problem. I want to talk about it. So, Daniel finally got to New York to his dad's apartment. Uh, he got lucky because, a. Uh, a family member had been passing through over the July 4th weekend and offered to drive him up from D.C. to New York City. When he arrived in New York City, he had $1 in his pocket. That was all that he had left. And now he's, he has heard from the department, and they've put all of his back-owed money onto a credit card but that credit card seems to have been somewhat lost in the mail. It seems like it went to an address in D.C. So now Daniel has to come back from New York to D.C. to try to get a hold of this credit card that has his money on it.
0: Kyle Swenson covers inequality for The Post. And now, one more thing from freelance reporter Sydney Page.
4: So at the start of the pandemic, healthcare workers were posting selfies on Instagram and other social media platforms, very clearly distressed on the front lines. And you could see on their faces bruises and mask marks and faces of exhaustion and pain and horror from what they had seen. We saw them coming out of Italy and New York and other places that saw major outbreaks. And these images really resonated with the people who saw them.
2: So you'd have someone posting a picture, let's say it's a, you know, has a Zoom call that she was having with her brother. And her brother sn- took a snapshot of the screen because she was she was crying and it, it just has a lot of emotion.
4: Steve Derrick is a fifty-four year old man. He lives in New York and he's a dad of four kids and he's a video game developer. But during the pandemic he was feeling sort of restless and lonely and he had come across these photos of healthcare workers and was completely moved by them and decided that he wanted to do something to recognize these individuals.
2: And she'd put, Hey, this is, you know, here's this picture and this is the story that went with it, which, you know, I just had a patient that I lost and they couldn't be with their family and You know, it's it's tearing me up, that kind of thing. And you just, ugh, uh, your heart goes out to those guys.
4: So his idea was to create a portrait project where he featured these healthcare workers in artwork and then sent them the finished product by mail. And he started reaching out to them directly, asking, you know, I want to hear about your story. I want to know what you're going through. And subsequently, I want to paint you. And I want to give you a keepsake so that you can remember this time in your life and mark this period in history.
2: Something that you would have That you can look back to, or even your kids could look back on and say, remember when mom worked 12 hour days for three months straight in New York? It's a way of documenting this point in history, but in a positive way.
4: So Steve still works full time as a video game developer. He works nine to five. He's a busy guy, but he spends every spare hour and moment in front of that easel. He is painting constantly whenever he has a break. And each portrait takes him approximately four hours or so to complete. And so far, as of this week, he's completed 125 portraits.
2: Well, during this pandemic, it's something that could be just devastating and really hard for me to deal with. Months and months and months on end, just sitting around and doing that. This has given me some really something positive to hang on to. You know, I get all this great feedback on how amazing these people are at their, at their jobs. And if I focused on all the other stuff that's going on, it would be a, a totally different experience for me. So it's it's, it's giving me a purpose.
4: One of Steve's most powerful portraits is of Meredith Borzoda. She's a nurse in Philadelphia who posted a very captivating selfie after a particularly difficult day of work back in April.
2: It was overwhelming to go from... You know, a hospital where we always have visitors and families are welcomed and, you know, support is everywhere to having to watch these patients that are so sick, you know, have to be there alone. And when I posted that picture, I think I just became overwhelmed by the emotion of the family, listening to them essentially say goodbye and not being able to be there with their mother and their grandmother that, you know, they clearly love so much.
4: And when he sent her the painting...
2: It was overwhelming. I mean, I just couldn't believe how beautiful he did it and the attention to detail. And he seemed like he caught every single emotion that I was feeling at that particular moment in time.
4: Steve is not the only artist who is honoring healthcare workers by sending them portraits. This is a trend that sort of broadened worldwide. I found artists in the UK, in Canada, all around the world who said, I haven't been able to do my usual work during this time. It just doesn't feel right. And I want to use my skill set and my talent to do something to help the medical community that is so graciously helping all of us and keeping all of us safe.
2: Reactions I've been getting before are... You know, this my whole family's crying. It's an amazing thing, thank you, thank you. This is the, um, I've gotten a couple, this is the most beautiful thing someone's ever done for me, which for me, you know, it doesn't feel like much of a sacrifice giving them something like this when what they've been doing is so much more. So it's, yeah, it's spreading some, some positivity.
0: Steve Derrick is an artist and video game developer. Sydney Page is a freelance reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Pinman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernofsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.